So Money episode 155, Tony Robbins. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. All week, I'll be airing some of the greatest episodes to date. Popular guests who helped put this podcast on the map, and we're starting with the Mac Daddy of them all, my very first episode with Tony Robbins. He happens to have been our very first guest on the show when So Money debuted on January 14th of this year. And Tony, as you know, is a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. He is the nation's number one life and business strategist. He's called upon to consult and coach some of the world's finest athletes, entertainers, Fortune 500 CEOs, and even presidents of nations. And through the Anthony Robbins Foundation and his matching funds, Tony feeds 4 million people every year in 56 countries. He's also initiated programs in more than 1,500 schools, 700 prisons, and 50,000 service organizations and shelters. Now, I had an opportunity to speak with Tony back in January as he was in the midst of his media blitz for his number one New York Times bestselling book, Money Master of the Game, Seven Simple Steps to Financial Freedom. And uh, people have written in to me since that episode aired to talk about how they didn't really know what to expect listening to a podcast uh, with Tony Robbins. They thought it might be really, uh, I don't know, like woo-woo, like over-the-top motivational, um, some were thinking that it might be something like infomercially, uh, and they were really, really surprised in a good way that they they, they said to me, you know, I, I learned a lot about Tony Robbins. I learned about his background. I really got to see a side of him that we don't often get to see or, well, hear. And so I'm proud that that podcast, this podcast, was able to accomplish that. And we also talked about his book, obviously. Uh, his media tour was extremely comprehensive. And we talked about uh, his book, his why he wanted to write it, uh, what makes it different from all the other financial books that are out there. And also a few things that you may not know about this man. For example, the moment in Tony's life that shaped not only his financial perspective, but his entire philosophy on life. Uh, we learn his most effective ritual that helps him make smart financial decisions and his very expensive guilty pleasure that allows him to save time and, and in turn, money. Tony also answers some of your questions about how to achieve goals and overcome the fear of failure. A really, really great episode. I'm proud to unleash. Here we go. Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins, welcome to So Money. How are you, Fernish? I'm doing so great. You know, this is actually day one of my new podcast, and I'm incredibly grateful to have you kick us off. It's only January, but uh, you've kind of made my year already, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a nice privilege. Thank you. I'm very off, very privileged to be on with you. And it's perfect timing for both of us. You've recently published a tremendously powerful book called Money, Master the Game, Seven Simple Steps, to financial freedom. And, you know, I was, I read the book. Uh, I did 600 pages cover to cover. I actually gave you uh, some praise before it even came out because I knew this was going to change the game of how we talk about money in this country and how we should be really grasping the the, the basics of finance um, in our personal lives. And so first of all, thank you for writing the book. 
Thank um, you. What I didn't quite get, though, was you talk early on in the book about how there was some skepticism surrounding you, Tony Robbins, writing a financial book. So, okay, you're not a financial expert, but we both know that mastering your money has more to do with psychology and mindset than anything else. So in some ways, didn't you feel like this was your calling to really be the one to translate this for the masses? Well, actually, yes, but not everybody knows that for the last, you know, I've had 21 years of actually coaching Paul Tudor Jones, who's one of the top 10 financial traders literally in the history of the world. This is a man who back in, you know, 1987, when the market had its largest, you know, drop in history percentage-wise, he made more money than anybody in a day like that in history. He made 200% that year to give you an idea. Um, And then I've worked with him for 21 years. So I was with him side by side when the tech crash happened in 2000, when 9-11 happened. And he's made money in 2008 when the market was down, as you remember, from peak to trough, 51%. He made positive 28%. So I literally coach him daily. I have ongoing communication with him. I measure everything he does. And for 21 years, no one of his size and scope can say this. He's never lost money. He makes money no matter what. So I thought if I could take what I've learned from him over 21 years, but I added to that by interviewing 50 of the most brilliant financial minds literally in the world. I'm talking self-made billionaires, people that started as golf caddies and now are worth $14 billion and manage $160 billion. Uh, If I could go to Nobel laureates, I covered the other side of the fence as well. And if I could really convert this into an action plan, like what I really respect you for is like make this simple enough so the average person could really do well. Well, I've read a lot of financial books. I've written a few myself. This is the best book on this topic. And I have an appointment with my financial advisor, a fiduciary, fortunately. Good for you. <laughs> in the new, I have, yeah, I'm meeting with her this month. She's lovely and smart and great. And I'm bringing your book and we're going to go through it. Let's get philosophical, Tony. Your book is full of secret strategies, for, as you say, from 50 plus most brilliant financial minds in, in the country and the world. And you also share some of your own personal financial truth bombs in the book. I want you to tell me, though, what's your favorite? What's your top personal financial philosophy or mantra that helps you keep your money where it needs to be? Well, you know, what all of these investors, what makes them the best in the world, they'll all tell you. I sat down uh, with David Swenson, who is the chief investment officer of Yale, and he took one billion of assets, which is a huge amount Yale had built up over the decades, and converted it to 24 billion in two decades, literally more than a billion a year. Uh, It's unheard of. He's the greatest institutional investor of all time. And I said to him, if you're going to move the dial, if you're going to really, if once people decide that they're going to not just be a consumer, they're going to be an owner, they're going to be somebody that's going to own business, they're going to grow, they're going to have assets. What, you know, what are the, what are all the tools you can really move in my experience of life and anything life or business? They're not unlimited things that can improve you. And he said, Tony, there's only really three primary dials. He said, you can either make better selections on the individual stocks or securities or whatever you're investing in, or you can have better timing, or you can have a better asset allocation. Those are the only three things you can do. And he said, let me just tell you, the only one that matters is asset allocation, because everyone's going to be wrong on timing, and the rest in the world are wrong on timing, and everyone's going to be wrong about the assets. It's not the most important investment decision in your life is not to buy Apple or not, or to buy this piece of real estate or not. It's your asset allocation, which is a very complex word for most people to say, I got to decide which portions of my money am I going to put in a place that's more secure where I may get a more limited return and where am I going to put places where I have more risk and I might have greater upside. And so to try to find the right asset allocation, one of the questions I asked every single one of these people, because they all approach life differently. I'm going to give you an example. I go sit down with Carl Icahn. Carl Icahn has produced a return of 1,600% 
in the last 13 years versus the S&P 500 is giving you 75% over that time period. I mean, uh, most people think of Warren Buffett as the greatest investor of all time, but Kiplinger just did a study that showed from 1968 on, if you were with invested with Carl, you would have had a 30% compounded return since 1968 per year. You'd have a 20% return for Warren Buffett, which is nothing to sneeze at, but there's no question. That's why Time Magazine put him on the cover and said, Master of the Universe. The day I went to see him, he literally wrote a, a ta- uh, not a text, a tweet on Apple saying it was undervalued in his opinion, and Apple stock went up $17 billion in two hours. I mean, this is unbelievable. A little powerful. And this is a man, but when you go to see this guy, he's, he's quite a player. So I go in to have the interview with him, and all these interviews are supposed to be 45 minutes. And, you know, I want to get in and I want to get inside their head. I don't want the general thing. So they almost always go three hours on average. I get there and the first thing Carl does is he says, video crew out. He throws them all out. I said, wait a second, Carl, you agreed to this. He goes, I don't care. I changed my mind. Okay, my audio crew. He goes, no audio crew. I said, no audio crew? What am I supposed to do? He goes, bring a pen, kid. You got 10 minutes. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Like, so you go, his personality, I mean, you know, I know it's been three hours. He wrote everybody. You got to read this book. Sophisticated investors, not. He's been an incredible friend and partner in this now. But Carl makes all his money by shaking the C-suite and saying, you guys are not maximizing this business and I'm going to put you out of business. I'm going to take your job away from you. That's how he does it. If you go to somebody like Jack Bogle, who's been in the business for 63 years, and this is a man, it's all the index. And he's a genius. He created the first index, Vanguard. You know, two point, what is it? Four trillion, five trillion dollars. Now that index. So my point is everybody's different, but I wanted to find out what, what were the common denominators for all of us? And so you asked the question, what was the insight for me? I found they, they all... Were totally different, but they shared two obsessions. One obsession was they don't lose money. I mean, they just, you know, Warren Buffett said a million times, what, what's the first two rules of investing? Rule one, don't lose money. Rule two, see rule number right, one. Right. <laughs> okay, Tony, you grew up quite poor and you talk in the book about that and how it helped you sort of shape your financial mindset now as an adult. You're a giver. You're very generous. You come from a place of gratitude and you look at the world as a place of abundance. Talk about perhaps one money memory as a child that that is sort of, you know, you, you think about it almost every day or it's a really a big active part of your mindset and how you how you lead your life financially. Well, one of probably the most significant event that shaped not only me financially, but shaped my philosophy of life, the way I live, certainly my career was when I was 11 years old and I had, um, you know, no food on Thanksgiving. My family, I'd forefathers, my fourth father came along and he was in real tough shape. And so he had not provided for us. I have a younger brother, younger sister. And, you know, parents, when they're in those kind of stressful events, you know, holidays make things even worse. And they were saying things to each other that, you know, you can never take back after you say them. And I'm trying to protect my brother and sister from hearing this. And this knock comes at the door and I open the door and there's a tall man there with all this food saying, is your dad here? And I mean, it was mind boggling. It was a gift from God. As far as I was concerned, I went and grabbed my father he didn't respond to, well, the idea of charity, even though we're starving. When I say starving, we would have had a meal the next day, but it wasn't going to be a feast. And it sure as hell, we weren't going to have a meal that night. And But my dad took the food, and it changed my life because before that happened, my father and my family had always said, nobody gives a damn about anybody else. You know, and There was so much evidence that people can be so selfish and mean and harsh, especially when you're struggling financially. Oftentimes, that's all you notice in the world. 
But I couldn't deny that strangers cared because the person who delivered the food was not the person, you know, giving it to us. It was a delivery guy. We don't, I still know this day who delivered the foods. Just somebody knew our family was in need and wanted us to have a great Thanksgiving. And so it completely shifted. It wasn't the food. It was that somebody really, a stranger cared. And so I thought if strangers care about me, I'm caring about strangers. So I decided that day, someday I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I didn't call it pay it forward in those days, but I'm going to pay it back as the mentality I had. And so when I was 17, I still wasn't doing well. I was just starting my life and career. But I said, I'm going to feed two families here. And I went and did it. And it was one of the more beautiful experiences of my life because one of the two families I went to feed, and I went in a T-shirt and jeans. I went as the delivery guy, even though I paid for the goodies because I didn't want anybody to be offended. I got to see the look on the, the eyes of this woman who had four children. Her husband had just left her. They had no food. And, you know, when I brought in all these bags of food and when I brought in the pumpkin pie, I mean, it was like over. <laughs> these kids were crazy. And so... I mean, I left there with so much emotion, crying because it's like, wow, you know, this all came about simply because, you know, we not only went through this, but my father left our family afterwards because he thought, you know, this many failed. And so it's like, if my father had not left, if we had not been through this pain, I wouldn't be here right now. And so that grew to the next year, four families, then eight. And I got my company's involvement. It's a little small company in those days. And eventually got to meeting a million meals like 15, 18 years ago. And then 2 million. I've been feeding 4 million people a year. 2 million through my foundation. And then 2 million I've, I've put up uh, to match it over the last five years. And then this year when I wrote the book, I thought, you know, they cut food stamps more than $8.7 billion last year. And nobody noticed. that. Basically, 2 million people are on their own. And these are people that they aren't just homeless people. It's your neighbor who counts on a certain amount of economic support. Now they have to decide, do I pay for my medicine? Do I have food? Or do I pay for the utilities? Or do I, you know, I give my kid this additional meal? It's crazy. You got 50 million people in the richest country in the world at 17 million children to go to bed every night, not certain if they're going to have food the next day. And so I thought, you know what? I want to bring attention to this. So I said, if I gave all of the money from this book in advance, not wait and see if it sells, how many I went to Feeding America, because the, the most powerful organization in the United States for taking care of people that are hungry. They said, you could feed 10 million people. I said, I'm in. And then as the years gone by, I've been writing. I've gotten more and more inspired. So I, I just wrote an additional check actually yesterday. I'm personally feeding 50 million people. And then I'm, I'm working with Feeding America. They're delivering the food, but they're doing an appeal now to get matching funds. So if somebody puts up $10, I match your $10. And together, we can feed 200 people. So I'm going to feed 50 million myself. But hopefully, with other people's help, we'll feed 100 million people this year. So I really believe that... You have to get beyond scarcity, and the only way you, you never get beyond it, you have to start beyond it by putting yourself in a position where you do something when it's difficult. I mean, I gave when I didn't have anything, and it became natural for me. People say, you know, when I'm rich, I'll give. They're lying. If you won't give a dime out of a dollar, there's no way you're going to give $100 million out of a billion. You're lying to yourself. But if you can do it today, the biggest thing that giving does is it teaches your brain there's more than enough. I mean, I'm, I'm right now, uh, I'm in a hotel here in Beverly Hills and, uh, and the peninsula, and probably 20 minutes from here, 15 minutes he's here is where I used to live in Venice, California. And I remember the day I became a wealthy man. I, I was literally, I was finishing the book, and when I was writing the book about how do I get across the, the message of this book? And the message I want people to get is it's not about money, it's about freedom. It's freedom from your fear. It's freedom from money controlling you. It's freedom to have time on your standards. It's freedom to do, share, and give but you don't get to that freedom just with money. There's a lot of people have their money and they're still not free. And the way I got the lesson was I was I was in Venice. I was living in this 400 square foot bachelor apartment. 
And I was mad at everybody. I was mad because nothing I'd worked on was working and I was deeply in debt and I loaned some money to people when I was doing well. And one in particular just ignored my phone calls. And I was literally down to my last $19 and a bunch of change. Maybe with change, I had 21 or $22. And I thought, I don't, I, how am I going to eat? And so I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I gave him this plan. I'm going to leave my car here. I'm not going to drive it for the gas. I'm not going to drive it so I have to pay for parking. And I'm going to go to Marina Del Rey about three miles from my home. I want to walk over there and I'm going to go to this really cool restaurant still there called El Torito. It's on the water there. We can see the boats going by and they have an all you can eat salad and taco bar. And I'm going to load up for the winter. I'm going to my five bucks. <laughs> you sound like I'm me in college. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I'm going to, yeah, I've read a little bit about it. I know you and I have a common background. I mean, you're doing $18 an hour before tax and, right. you know, borrowing, borrowing clothes and the whole <laughs> Lots thing. Lots of so, canned tuna and $5 Subway subs. Yeah. I had ketchup for my, you know, I'm pouring ketchup on my spaghetti because I'm going to pour it for tomato sauce. <laughs> I love I ketchup. ketchup. It's an underrated so it's, condiment. <laughs> it really is. So I'm sitting there and I'm stuffing my face. If you can picture for and I'm like looking out the window and all of a sudden my, my fury of fear is kind of subsiding for a moment because I'm just, you know, the sun's out, boats are going by. It's like, oh, I'm, just, I'm full. <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm not worried about the future for a moment or two. And then the door opens, the main restaurant door, and this very attractive woman walks in. So I obviously got my attention as a male. But then I looked to see who her suitor was and her suitor was about four feet tall. You see this little boy, probably eight years old. And it's his, obviously her son, and he's in a three-piece suit, and he opens the door for her, and he pulls out the chair for her. And I just got to tell you, I don't know what it was about him, but he was so loving, so present with his mother. You know, not everywhere else. He was right there with her. But something about it just touched me, and I, I went and paid for my meal. I don't know, probably $5.95 for all you could eat in those days. And so I took whatever's left, probably $13, $14, stuck it in my pocket, and I walked over to this little boy and I said to him, I said, I said, hi, I introduced myself. And I said, listen, I just want to tell you, you're a class act. I saw you held, held the door for your lady and how you pulled out the chair and you're really class act. And he goes, well, she's my mom. <laughs> and I, said, <laughs> I said, that's even more cool. And I said, it's pretty cool. You're taking her lunch like this. And he goes, well, I'm not taking her lunch because I'm only eight. I don't have a job. Oh. You know? And I said, well, you are taking her lunch. And I didn't have a plan. I didn't have this idea. I just said, you are taking her lunch. I reached in my pocket. I didn't hesitate a moment. I took every penny I had and dropped it on the table in front of him. And the look on his face is worth it. I mean, his eyes got big as garbage can covers, right? And he says, I can't take that. And I said, yes, you can. He said, I'll come. I said, because I'm bigger than you are. And he laughed and I laughed. And I didn't even look at her. I just walked out the door. No car, right? No money. I don't, have, I don't know where my next meal's going to come from. I should have been freaking out going, what the hell's going on? And it was the most, I don't know how to describe it. It was the most free I'd ever felt in my life. I went home, walked home. I worked on this plan. I thought, okay, within 10 days, I'll have some cash flow. You know, people fast for 10 days. I start to rationalize. And the next day on the old snail mail, I get this check for the $1,200 I loaned this guy who wouldn't return my phone calls, apologizing with an additional little bonus in there, which in those days would have lasted me a month. And I started to cry. And I was just sitting there going, why did this happen? And then I thought to myself, it happened because I did what was right. It happened because I saw this little soul in front of me. I didn't think, I didn't, it wasn't cute. It wasn't a strategy. I didn't do it because I thought I should. I gave because it was the right thing to do. I gave because I wanted to. And that's the day I became a wealthy man. I had no money. I just, but I linked up in my head. If you go, you and I don't stop to take a breath and think, is there going to be air there before you take a breath? You know, it's going to be there. And that's the day I did it. Unconditional generosity. Truly. Do you have rituals that are financial, Tony, that, I mean, obviously habits are important for maintaining and whatever it is that you want to, you know, achieve in your life. But speaking strictly financials, are there habits that you have that help you keep your money 
uh, safe and protected? For me personally, it's really looking for and never believing you have all the answers. One of the reasons I wrote this book is, you know, I spent 21 years coaching one of the most brilliant guys in the world never loses money, but I learned so much. I figured out how little I knew. The best people on earth, they all say, what don't I know? Because the world's always changing. And so I look for things like what I wanted to put in this book. I, you know, I did this book because I thought, if I go out here, I want to be able to show my kids. I want to be able to show anybody what to do. Now, I reached out to some of my listeners, Tony, and I asked them, if you could ask Tony Robbins anything about money, what would it be? And turns out people want to turn to you for all sorts of questions. People were asking me, hey, can you ask Tony where I should live? Where's my husband? I'm looking for love. I mean, you are God to people. You probably know this. So I, and I said, look, okay, they didn't follow the directions, but some people did. So I have two really good questions that I right. wish I'd love to ask you on their behalf. Um, sure. Julie wants to know, how do you change from being an opportunity seeker and always wanting to actually being a business owner? She and her husband say they, she says, we always keep on seeking out opportunities, but we never actually do anything. Well, you have to understand why. Um, there's two reasons why. Number one, certain things are exciting. Beginning something's exciting. Searching for something's exciting. Uh, finishing something's exciting. Building something can be exciting. But the hard work that it takes to commit yourself to something and let go of all the other possibilities is not very exciting. In fact, it's scary. And so for what most people do is they want to stay excited. So it's like entertainment. It's like, why do people live in a world on the internet where they are living on the internet for hours and they don't really accomplish much. A lot of movement, a lot, a lot of achievement. It's because one link leads to the next, leads to the next. So what you have to do is you have to be honest with yourself about what's happening. You're really afraid to fail. That's just the truth. We all are. It's human nature. We're afraid that, you know, I, as long as I keep talking about the future, it's an exciting future. But what if I commit to it and it doesn't work and now I got to deal with the deepest fear all human beings have? I'm not enough. And if I'm not enough, the deeper fear is that I'm not worth loving. I mean, that's what we connect unconsciously as human beings. And so what you have to do is got to say together, you know what we're going to do? If I'm going to try and make the perfect decision, I'll never make a decision. The most successful leaders on earth, you are a leader if you can make decisions because so few people do in this world today. People spend, spread their preferences. They talk about what they want. They skate on the surface. They don't go deep and master anything. If you decide... I'm going to make the tough decisions. Then you're going to be an effective leader. And the first tough decision is, in order to do something, I got to give up other things. I got to pick one thing. It's not going to be perfect, but I'm going to make it perfect. I got to pick something that I'm driven by. And if you don't know what it is, you got to pick one thing and go full towards at it. You got to give it its time. You got to say, I'm going to spend the next 18 months doing this. If I find out I'm wrong, I'm going to find out quicker than I spend the next 18 months still looking at 15 opportunities. So I think the bottom line is, You've got to face your fear. And the way to do that often is turn fear on itself. And you say in your book, let your disappointments drive you to find new answers. I highlighted that and I have it stuck on my wall now. That's awesome. And now Ray wants to know, what is the best way to deal with your own fear of failure after a bankruptcy or other financial disaster? And I picked this question because I think a lot of Americans are still suffering the aftermath of the, you know, the, the great financial crash of 2008, 2009. And so what do you say to these people who feel still financially fragile and, and vulnerable? Well, I, I'd say to somebody of that nature that, again, you have two choices. You can do nothing and then we know what's going to happen. You've already failed because you're not going to earn your way to a financial future. You're only going to do it by taking earnings and converting yourself into an owner, into an investor or building a business, right? That's the only way you're really going to be able to do this. So 
I, I don't care what you've been through. It sounds horrible, but I've been through it as well. I mean, I've had bigger fish to fry. Somebody comes to me and says, you have a tumor in your brain, you may die. You know, I've, I've buried four parents, three fathers and a mother. I've been through so many things that, quite frankly, we need to stop talking about the story of what we've been through, and we got to focus on what it is we're going to create. Because anybody who really does go through extreme stress and really deals with it and just stops telling the story about it, an interesting thing happens. Keep telling the story. Every time you tell the story, you feel the fear again. But you go, you know, this happened one time. You don't talk about it anymore. You just focus on what you want to deliver. The game changes. And here's what happens when you make it through extreme stress. And by the way, everybody's going to go through it. Everyone's going to lose a family member. Everybody's going to find a time where either you or someone you care about has a significant health challenge. Everyone's going to face some ridiculous financial or job or career challenge. We're all going to face it at some time, or you're going to have somebody steal something. It's going to happen. Aren't you glad you showed up at this positive podcast? But it's, <laughs> but it's true. But it's true. So I'd say to that individual, what you really got to do is you got to put the story to bed. Divorce your story of your past and marry the truth of what you do today is all that matters. If you marry the truth and act on the truth, your life will change. If you keep sharing the story, and by the way, we do this because we think if we tell people, I really want to do it, but I'm just fearful because I lost all this money in the past. It gives us an excuse why we're not doing it now. It's not that we're weak. It's not that we have no guts. It's not that we have no courage. It's just this horrible thing happened to me. We all love to plan or point the finger to something we can't control that's not our fault. Divorce your story, Ray. <laughs> okay. With dear love to you, Ray. Yeah. <laughs> great question. Great answer. Last but not least, this is the um, the finale where I'm going to start a sentence and you'll finish it for me in the first thing that comes to your mind, okay? Great, go for it. The one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Private jets, private flight, extraordinary. There's nothing that changes the quality of life when you travel as much as I do as that. I've gone first I gotta tell fast. you something. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. I have a friend who says to me one day, he's an Aspen, very, very wealthy man. By the way, if you want to do better financially, a universal principle is change who you spend time with. Because who you spend yes. time with is who you become. Yes. If you go play, you know, a sport, let's say, you know, tennis, ragaball, whatever, and you play against somebody that's 10 times your ability, you are gonna increase your skill just to stay on the court with them. But if you play against people you're better than, it's only a matter of time before your game goes down. So in my life, I've always tried to reach the people that were playing the game much higher and knew the game ahead of me. Like they knew the road ahead because I know that anticipation is power. So those who know the road ahead are somebody that's you know, 18 years my senior, for example. So I had a friend 18 years my senior, still a dear friend of mine, still 18 years my senior as the years have gone by. But this is you know, when I was in my early 30s. I'm now in my mid-50s, 54. And so... I remember I went to see him in Aspen. He had this thousand-acre ranch in Aspen, very wealthy guy, asked me to come for Christmas, had this big dinner, and I lived in San Diego, California. So, you know, I had to fly from San Diego to L.A., and then I'd get on a flight, which, was, of course, the San Diego flight was late. The L.A. flight was late, which went to Denver. In Denver, they lost their luggage, and they had to get on another flight from, from Denver over to Aspen. And so, in the end, it was about a 12-hour, you know, maybe 13-hour full travel time from start to finish, house to house. I was late, the dinner was over, I missed all the festivities. And he said, he come pulled me aside, he said, what does it matter with you? I said, what are you talking about? He goes, why would you spend 13 hours, 12 hours of your time traveling? You could have been here in 90 minutes. I said, dude, I'm not, I'm not a billionaire like you. He goes, you don't have to be a billionaire, you have to start thinking that you're worth it. And he said, here's what you need to do. You need to go charter. He said, now, if you go charter, you're not going to like the price you see, because you're going to see, I could have got a ticket for $800 and made all those trips. Now, if I charter, this thing might cost me $5,000 for the small jet in those days to do this trip. 
He said, but I'm going to tell you something. If you just take a budget and you say for the year, I'm going to spend this, but I can go when I want, where I want, wherever I want in the middle of the night with my own food. I can sleep in the middle of the night because I can have a bed on the plane. He said, it will change your productivity more than anything on earth. And it sounded insane. So he said, start with a small amount, pick a number and just say, you're going to charter. Don't be stupid and buy a jet. That doesn't make any sense. He goes, just go charter. And finally, real quick, Tony, I'm so money because... I'm so money because I never think that thought. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not. I'm so happy because I get to give. I get to grow. I get to expand. I get to serve. I get to have an impact. I get to wake up each day surrounded by extraordinary human beings that are my friends and family and those that are my coworkers that really are my extended family. Uh, I'm on fire. I'm, I'm, I'm fully alive because my life is about creating impact. And as long as that's true, there's never a day that's boring. I'll tell you, the worst part about money is people think if I make a certain amount of money, then I'll never work again. If you, your real goal is make enough money so you don't have to work. If you don't work, you'll go crazy. Every person I know, Steve Wynn's a dear friend of mine who rebuilt Las Vegas. He's 72. Warren Buffett's 84 years old. I mean, I can go through a list of 20 people I know at that stage of life. And they're working more today than they ever did before. And they got billions of dollars. This isn't about the money. That's why I call money master the game. It is a game. A lot of people get offended by that. It's like, oh, my God, how could you call it a game? It is. The wealthiest people in the world know it's a game. And the reason they succeed is they know it's a game. They know there are certain rules. If you know the rules, you can win. And if you don't, you're going to lose. Rather than being pissed about it, learn. And that's why I wrote this book. I said, I want to help the average person to know what the richest people on earth know. And I want to give it to them in a form that they can really follow through on. And that's what this book's about. Well, uh, I love the book. You make it winnable. You make it easy. You make it simple. And we appreciate you, Tony Robbins. Thank you so much. The book is called Money Master the Game, Seven Simple Steps to Financial Freedom. Get this book. It will change your life. Tony, thank you so much. Thank you. And just know you'll change your life. You're going to also feed 50 other people. So blessings to everybody. New year, new life to you all. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Tony Robbins, his website is TonyRobbins.com. He's also on Twitter at Tony Robbins. All this information and the transcript from this episode over at SoMoneyPodcast.com. And I want to hear from you. You can submit your question to me because every weekend I do answer your questions in an Ask Farnoosh episode. Back to back Saturday and Sunday. Just hop onto so moneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh, and there you can ask me anything that's on your money mind, on your career mind, on your life mind. I try to answer everything as honestly and as uh, correctly as possible. And you can also find me on Twitter at Farnoosh. Just use the hashtag so money. And as a reminder, if you'd like to win a free 15 minute money session with me, hop over to iTunes and leave a review for this show. And as I've been doing every Saturday, I pick one new reviewer to get that 15-minute money blitz with me. And I've been doing this now for, I guess, several months. It's been very successful. Got to interact with many of you one-on-one. It's awesome. So please, if you want to do that and you want to win a chance, hop over to iTunes and leave a review. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this replay of our Tony Robbins episode. Let's uh, let's connect here back here tomorrow. Um, we got another goodie, oldie but goodie for you tomorrow. Well, we got Tim Ferriss on the podcast. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Hope it's so money. So money.